Welcome to the Morning Scroll. I'm Rabbi Dina Cowens from Mishkan, Chicago. This week, we have a very special bonus show, our second ever mailbox episode to celebrate the end of the book of Exodus. In celebration, I'm taking some listener questions about the book of Exodus. I'm honestly so grateful to everyone who wrote in, and I'm so stoked to hear what this book left you wondering, pondering, feeling confused by, etc. As a brief reminder, Exodus is the second book of the Torah, and it takes us from the Israelites starting to really settle into the land of Egypt, leaving Egypt, being redeemed from slavery, entering the desert, getting the Torah, and then building the Mishkan. So there's a lot in there, and let's dig in. Hi, Rabbi Dina. This is Roberta. I'd like to know a little bit more about Moses' family. Until this year, I didn't even realize that he had married, had children, or an influential father-in-law. What else should we know about his family? This is an awesome question because it's noting a lack that exists in the Torah. So it's one of those weird things about the Torah that in many places it seems totally obsessed with genealogy and gives us these very long, exhaustive lists of everyone's kids, 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 kids. And yet when it comes to Moshe, who is arguably the most important character in the Torah, we get very little. So here's what we do know, and then I'll try to summarize kind of what the commentators do with this. So Moshe meets his wife, whose name is Tzipporah, when he flees Egypt after killing the taskmaster, and he comes to the land of Midian, and he sees these seven women trying to get their sheep into the well to get them water, and the other male shepherds kind of block the women out and don't let them get in. And Moshe comes to their rescue and fights off all the other shepherds and helps them water their flock. So the seven sisters go home, and they tell their father, whose name there is Reuel, though later he will become known as Yitro, they say hey, we're home early. And the father's like, wow, what happened? And they're like, oh, this man like stood up for us and defended us so that we could get water really early. And Reuel is like, duh, ladies, where's your hospitality? Bring him home. So the next thing we know, Moses has agreed to stay with them and gets Zipporah as a wife. And then the next thing we know after that, like literally the next verse, is that she gives birth to a son and Moshe names him Gershom because he's a Ger, a foreigner there. And then at some point, he has another son, Eliezer, who we actually don't hear about until Moses, or actually maybe Eliezer, is attacked by an angel in the middle of the night, and Zipporah quickly circumcises the baby and then touches either Moshe's feet or Eliezer's feet with the foreskin and saves his life. It's a really unclear story, and it happens as Moshe is on his way back to the land of Egypt to do God's mission. But at some point, either... Zipporah and the sons must have turned back on the journey or they got to Egypt and then were sent back. We don't hear anything about that, though the commentators do have something to say. The next thing we hear about Moshe's wife and kids is that they meet up with them in the desert for revelation. Like when Yitro comes out to meet Moshe, Yitro comes with Moshe's wife and kids in tow. The last mention we get of any kind of wife for Moshe is when Aaron and Miriam in the book of Numbers are gossiping about Moshe being married to a Cushite woman, and God gets really mad, punishes them. We don't really know, is that Cushite woman the same person as Tzipporah? Is it a different wife? We don't really know. So the commentators have somewhat to say about this like surprising lack of information about Moshe's family and kids. The first is that they note that Moshe only has two children, which is fairly unusual for the Torah at that time. And they say, well, I guess that means that that commandment about being fruitful and multiplying means you can satisfy it with two kids. Because if Moshe Rabbeinu, the great Moshe, can do it, certainly we can too, which is pretty interesting. We don't get any mention about Moshe's kids becoming priests or succeeding him. We know that Joshua, who's not related to him at all, succeeds him. Moshe's kids kind of disappear into the narrative, which... 
you know, is kind of nice for them that like they're not put on the spot just because their father had a big job. And on the other hand, it's like sort of weird that they're left out of this very like family-based tradition. The other thing that the commentators say about this very surprising lack of information about Moshe's wife and children is that there's an idea in the Torah that a person who has a seminal omission needs to purify themselves before they can encounter God. And the commentators say, well, you know, Moshe has to be available to God at God's every beck and call. So it would be extremely impractical for Moshe to have a wife because then he would have to be purifying himself. And like, it would be really awkward if God was like, come here, Moshe, I have something to say. And Moshe was like, uh, hang on a sec, God was just getting busy with my wife. Let me hop in the mikvah. And so the commentators say what Moshe did was a very pragmatic decision to send his wife away from him. They don't really say divorce. They just sort of say like to not cohabitate with his wife so that he could be pure and ready at any time. You know, your question is good because it's getting at something that we would expect to see in the Torah that's not there. We don't get a lot of answers, which means it is our turn to make up some midrash about them. And that's the most fun part. Why did God leave B'nai Yisrael in Egypt for 400 years before setting us free? All right. So this seems like such a sensitive question. I also have this question. Why did they have to suffer for so long? So I've got two possible answers for you. The first is that back in the book of Brashit, God told Abraham that Abraham's descendants were going to go down to Egypt and we're going to be there for 400 years and we're going to be enslaved. And then God was going to bring them back to the land that God had, pro- God had promised to Abraham. So this is just God's way of saying, see, I follow through on my promises. It doesn't really explain why God God wanted the Israelites to be in Egypt in the first place, but it does teach us something about God, which is that we can trust God's word, which is important. The other answer I have is sort of softening the blow of the 400 years. It doesn't really answer your question. So it doesn't seem like the Israelites actually were enslaved in Egypt for the entire time they were there, or even for most of that time. It seems like actually for the vast majority of the 400 years, The Israelites were like immigrant workers in a place that was actually pretty good to be an immigrant worker. They lived in a really good area. They seemed to enjoy a comfortable life. They seemed to be pretty well accepted there. So it seems like it was good for a while. And then we learn at the beginning of the book of Exodus that something in the leadership of Egypt changed and things got bad. And then about the commentators say 80 years later, they got much worse right? At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we hear that a new pharaoh came into power who didn't know Joseph and things got worse for the Israelites. And then when Moshe flees Egypt and is living in Midian for a little while, that's actually when we hear that the Israelites are crying out to God from their burden. So I guess for the time that it was good for the Israelites, it was just like God was like, okay, things are good for you, so stay there. And then once it got bad, it took a while for things to get so bad that the Israelites cried out for help, at which point God does intervene, right? The Torah says the cries of the Israelites reached God. So one of the commentators, Sforno, says that God intervenes at this moment, not only because of the Israelites crying out, though God is sensitive to that, but because this is the moment when the Egyptian treatment of the Israelites got particularly cruel, which I find really interesting that God is concerned about the suffering of the Israelites, but God seems to be okay with them suffering a little bit, like with things being uncomfortable. But God seems to have a real problem with the Egyptians taking on cruelty as well. It also teaches us that what if the Israelites had cried out earlier? Like what if 
before Moshe had left, before Moshe even was born, when this new pharaoh, or some commentators say it's the same pharaoh, but he had like a whole change of heart about things. What if they had said then like, wow, you know, this is not great. Like, I don't want to live in a not great situation. If they had spoken up then, would God have said like, okay, you know what? You seem uncomfortable. Let me help you out. To me, that teaches us that when things start to get bad, we shouldn't wait to speak up or wait until they get unbearable. Like if we see someone being bullied or having a hard time or experiencing injustice, we shouldn't just write it off as like, well, it's not that bad. I'm sure they'll be fine. And we should say like, no, you know what? Let's stop this before it gets worse. Not sure that actually answered your question, but I hope it sort of softens the blow a little bit on like, why does this horrible thing have to happen in the first place? Which is a question I also have. It seems there are two versions of God in the book. One in which God is the king of kings, the supreme deity, and another in which God is the only God. Do later commentators talk about this? So this is kind of a doozy of a question. Um, And so I'm going to try to answer it as succinctly as I can and just know like this might be a lifelong project. So... The biblical criticism answer, sort of like the scholarly Bible answer, is this is just evidence of the evolution of biblical monotheism between the books of Genesis and Exodus. The book of Genesis probably came from, certainly lives in, a world in which the nations competed about whose God was strongest, as you said. The world of Exodus probably comes from and certainly lives in a different world in which claiming there is only one God is a much more powerful claim. Right around this time, Pharaoh also came to be associated with one supreme God above the others. So the shift in biblical theology from the mightiest of the gods who are available to this one is the one fits historically. And I will say up front, I think that is the answer to your question is just, I actually said in the Genesis mailbox episode that we see the Torah mature. That the book of Breshit is like the childhood and teenagehood of the Torah. And most of us, I imagine, didn't have particularly complex, nuanced theologies when we were children. We had certainly some kind of theology, and it was probably pretty reflective of the theologies that were available to us at the time. And then as we get older, we start to think for ourselves and we start to be able to process our own experiences and make sense of them and come to our own conclusions. And I think like we can just kind of see the evolution of the Torah from Genesis to Exodus along that same line. But you asked about commentators. So I'll try and dive into some of, some of what the commentators say. And because I haven't read all commentary in existence on the entire Torah, that would be hashtag goals. Here are a couple of my thoughts from what two of my favorite commentators say on the first commandment which is, I am the Lord your God, don't have any others, and on the Shema, which I think are the two most clear places in the Torah where these competing theologies of one God above the others or one God period are thrown into conflict. So Rashi, sort of like the first place you turn when you look at biblical commentary, on the first commandment in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, says that God revealed God's self in different forms to the Israelites as a military power and a miracle doer in Egypt. And then, this is a direct quote, as a gray beard filled with compassion later. I mean, that's just like a hilarious description. So Rashi notes that at the revelation, the Israelites heard God's voice from all directions and had this like, very overwhelming physical experience. And so God says to them in the first commandment, as they're kind of like looking around, wondering where this voice is coming from and how there's voice coming from all these different directions, 
God says, no, no, don't get confused. There's only one of me. I am everything. Which might make us think that Rashi Azan team, no, it was just one God all along. But on the Shema, Rashi says that the phrase Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, this God is our God, this God is one, really means this God who is now our God and not the God of the other peoples of the world, at some future time, that God will be the one sole God. Kind of complicated, right? But basically Rashi is saying, so this is our God, there are other gods at some point in the future, in like a messianic redemptive future, there will only be one God and it will be our God. And then Rashi quotes a line from the prophet Zephania that we might recognize from the Alenu prayer in which Zephania says, Bayom hahu Adonai echad. At some future point in this redemptive future, our God will be the only one, meaning right now, pre-Messiah, there are other gods. Interestingly, Rashi in neither of these comments mentions anything about power, which I think was in your original question. And Rashi just focuses on how part of opting into Jewish peoplehood is opting into a monotheistic worldview. I actually don't think Rashi cares about the theology you mentioned first about a more or less powerful deity. Instead, Rashi is sort of like, this is the God who did miracles for us, who is in relationship with us. Why bother focusing on anything else? Which doesn't answer your question fairly, but I think is is sort of compelling to me. Like, why do you need to know everything that's out there if the thing that is in front of you is the most important thing? Okay, just to look at one other commentator, Ramban sees the first commandment, Anochi Adonai Elohecha, I am your God, as a positive commandment, meaning you need to believe in my sole existence as deity in the world, not some of that other theology out there about there being other gods. But Ramban adds that the word Elohecha, which means your God, is supposed to teach the Israelites that their God is God to them, aka maybe other people have other gods that are their gods, that are legit But if you're counting yourself in this people, then the party line is one God and only one God for us. So pretty much the same thing that Rashi says earlier. But this time, Ramban actually carries this theology through to the Shema, and he quotes Rashi on the possibility that there are other gods out there, and then says, no, no, no. The essential nature of the Shema is the unity of God. That's the essential nature, the sort of like essential point of the Shema. That's why Moshe says here, Eloheinu, our God, and not Elohecha, your God, which is what Moshe usually says, like even in the next line, via hafta et Adonai Elohecha, love your God. Moshe specifically says Eloheinu here, according to Ramban, to make it clear that he's in on this unity of God because there's no way to be out. There's no my God and your God. There's just the God. Or so says Ramban. Which is kind of a long-winded way of saying, honestly, the Parshanim don't seem too concerned with the fact that parts of the Torah that might make us think there are other multiple gods in a power struggle with each other would be important to us. They basically take the view that whatever theology was out there before these two defining moments of the Ten Commandments and the Shema, in which our God is the one and only, are less important than the conclusion that we're supposed to draw, which is that we've got one and only one who encompasses all things. Like, okay, so maybe there's a different theology in the book of Brashit. We don't live in the book of Brashit. We live now, and now we believe in one God. And I heard this theological idea recently that God is like a vast ocean, that we're all just standing on the shore of that ocean looking towards the middle. And of course, we can't see the middle. 
And in fact, what each of us sees standing on our own shore is something totally different from someone else. But at the end of the day, we're all looking in the same direction. And I think that's the thrust of what the commentators are saying, is like, okay, are there other theologies out there? Yes, but this is our task, is to stick to this one in whatever way we can. Hope that helps. You've been listening to an extra special mailbox episode of The Morning Scroll with me, Rabbi Dina Cowens. If you've enjoyed this week's bonus episode, please let me know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and hitting that subscribe button. Every week we release three-minute episodes meant to help you incorporate learning and spiritual practice into your busy routine or your commute from your bed to your bathroom to your coffee maker to your desk. So why not share this show with a friend or family member who's looking for some bite-sized Torah? We really appreciate you helping spread the word. Thanks for tuning in, and congrats, you've finished the second book of the Torah. Next week, we're back to the book of Vayikra. Can't wait, and see you there.